Chapter 10, Part 2 of Twenty Years of the Republic, 1885-1905, to by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Rising in the West, Part 2 Some of the early protagonists of populism and of the silver school of democracy won a temporary notoriety beyond the limits of their respective states. A very few were destined to play a part in national politics. Among the former were Governor Penoyer of Oregon and Governor Waite of Colorado, who may be cited as types of the erratic leaders in the new movement. Penoyer had been elected as a Democrat in the reaction following upon the passage of the McKinley Bill. He first became known by his boorishness in refusing to meet President Harrison on the borders of Oregon at the time of the President's journey through the West. During the Coxey demonstration, a part of Kelly's army came into conflict with the officers of the law, and Governor Penoyer was besought to send military assistance to the latter. To this appeal he replied by telegram, Let them fight it out. I don't care a hoop which side wins. Governor Waite of Colorado gained demagogic honors by the violence of his public speeches, in one of which he spoke of the impending war between the capitalists and the downtrodden people. I am prepared, said he to ride in blood up to my bridles. As Mr. Waite had never been noted as a fighting man, this sanguinary intimation served rather to amuse than to alarm, but it won for the governor the sobriquet of Bloody Bridles Waite. Another erratic, though much cleverer, personage was Jerry Simpson, a convert from republicanism, whom the Kansas populists had sent to Congress. In Washington, and at last all over the country, he became known as Sockless Jerry, from a popular legend to the effect that he cultivated simplicity by wearing nothing besides shoes upon his feet. Among the women who shared with men the prestige of political leadership, the most interesting figure was Mrs. Mary Elizabeth Lease, who may be styled the Anna Dickinson of populism, for she had all the vehemence and much of the wild eloquence of the once famous abolitionist. Mrs. Lease was a native of Pennsylvania who, in 1885, was admitted to practice at the Kansas Bar. She was drawn into the Union Labor Movement, became a member of the Farmers' Alliance, discovered a gift for extemporaneous speaking, and in 1890 was one of the most important political leaders in the state. She headed the forces that were opposed to the re-election of Senator Ingalls, and the whirlwind campaign which she conducted against him was a notable event of the year 1890. The vitriolic oratory of Ingalls was fairly outdone by the amazing vocabulary of vituperation which Mrs. Lease had at her command, and which poured forth with a fury and an intensity of passion that thrilled her listeners and fired them with her own emotions. This Kansan pythoness defeated Ingalls, and in 1893 came measurably near procuring for herself a seat in the Senate of the United States. To her was ascribed the admonition already referred to, Kansas had better stop raising corn and begin raising hell. The doctrine of free silver had not only its prophets and its orators, but also its literary propagandists. The history of political pamphleteering contains few more curious incidents than the vogue enjoyed by one of the pro-silver tracts, which in 1895 became to the West what the drapier letters of Dean Swift were to the Irish people in 1724. A young man named William Howard Harvey, a native of West Virginia, began the publication in 1893 of an illustrated paper called Coin, devoted to the cause of free silver coinage. Mr. Harvey was fairly educated and had dipped into a large number of treatises on bimetallism, from which he had gleaned a variety of arguments in support of the Silver Party's chief tenet. At last he wrote and published a little volume with the title Coin's Financial School, presenting his arguments partly in the form of a dialogue. 
Note 9, page 454. Accompanied by some explanatory narrative. The book opened with a brief account of the existing financial stringency and of the business depression noticeable throughout the country. It then went on to tell how Coyne, a young financier in Chicago, established a school of finance to instruct the youths of the nation. The school opened on the seventh day of May, 1894. One of the largest halls in the Art Institute was comfortably filled. Coyne stepped out on the platform looking like the smooth little financier he is. Coyne's lectures and demonstrations were supposed to have been continued for six days. On the first day there were present a number of well-known young men, sons of Chicago editors, and other leading citizens. On subsequent days the audience increased and finally included United States senators, university professors, bank presidents, and economic experts, all of whom were specifically named and most of whom interrupted Coyne's lucid exposition and endeavored to refute his arguments. Of course, Coyne easily disposed of them, silencing them by apt illustrations, pertinent facts, or pointed wit. On the last day of his lectures, he had convinced the majority of his hearers and had become a popular idol, so that the book ends with an account of a brilliant reception given him at the Palmer House by a large and distinguished company. The veracious chronicle, with its interspersed dialogue and easy repartee, was cheaply printed, while its text was illustrated by a series of rude woodcuts appealing partly to popular prejudice and partly to the almost universal love of false analogy. Analogy, says Charles Reed somewhere, is not argument, which is the reason why so many persons use it as such. Both the text and the woodcuts in Coyne's financial school admirably exemplified the truth of this remark. One of his hearers asked Coyne whether the government, by putting its stamp on silver, could make fifty-three cents' worth of that metal equal to a dollar in gold. Certainly, says Coyne in substance. If the government were to buy one hundred thousand horses, wouldn't the price of horses go up? And to persuade the reader that a double metallic standard is preferable to a single standard, a picture is given of a one-legged man moving painfully along on crutches. Two legs are better than one. Hence, two metals are better than one. Another cut illustrates Jevons' famous metaphor of the two reservoirs connected by a pipe. In fact, the creator of coin had got together every sort of argument, ranging from scientific induction to the most obvious fallacy in the cheapest claptrap, all tending to show that national prosperity could never return until the government mints were reopened to the free coinage of silver, at the old ratio of sixteen to one. The success of this little book was extraordinary. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of copies were sold and circulated. It was the Silver Party's Bible, and every word in it was accepted as literally true. The farmer studied it by his fireside. The shopman, in the intervals between serving customers, took hasty glances at it. It was read aloud at country gatherings. Its arguments were cited as unanswerable. Those who studied it were able to chatter volubly about primary money, medium of exchange, circulation per capita, and other topics which they came to imagine that they understood. Most of its readers believed that Coyne was a real person, that everything narrated in the book had taken place precisely as narrated there, and that the distinguished senators, economists, and publicists had actually been silenced and put to confusion by the smooth little financier. So widespread an influence did the book exert that even serious periodicals, like The Nation, felt it worth while to expose the inaccuracy of Coyne's facts and the fallacy of his deductions. Not without significance were such of Coyne's woodcuts as appealed to prejudice and passion. 
no doubt to thousands these were as effective as the arguments. Silver was depicted as a beautiful woman whose head was stricken off by the malignant Senator Sherman. The assassination of Silver was the legend under another woodcut. In another, the nation is represented as a cow, which the farmers are busily engaged in feeding while a fat capitalist comfortably milks it. In still another, Mr. Sherman and President Cleveland are shown in the guise of burglars secretly digging out the foundation, silver, of a well-built house. For whoever else was now held up to odium, the President was certain to be made a sharer in it. The ties which had bound him to a majority of his party were practically sundered. In Congress he had few supporters and many bitter enemies. There were senators who personally hated him so much that they opposed and hampered legislation which they themselves approved, if only they believed that he was favorable to it. In the House, now that the Democrats were in a small minority and were not steadied by responsibility, many cast off all pretense of decorum and ceased to speak of Mr. Cleveland with ordinary respect. A group of these refractory Democrats won for themselves the nickname of the Wild Horses because they could not be kept within the party traces. Chief among them were Mr. Sibley of Pennsylvania, Mr. Johnson of Ohio, and Mr. Bland of Missouri. Mr. Sibley had, in fact, never pretended to follow the avowed policy of his own party. He had voted against a revision of the tariff. He had opposed the administration's financial measures and he was in general more hostile to the president than was the bitterest Republican. On January 8, 1896, he made in the House a coarse and violent speech which was remarkable as being the utterance of a Democrat regarding his party's chief. In it, he accused the president of giving offices in return for votes. He repudiated all party responsibility for the administration's policy. He wound up by declaring that what the country needed was a government which was something more than a combination of brains, belly, and brass. The administration, moreover, could no longer count upon the solid support of the Southern members of Congress, who had long been a bulwark of conservatism and party loyalty. In many of the Southern states, the Democratic Party had suffered a transformation. Hastened by the influence of populism, the change had, nevertheless, been different in character from that which was affected in the West. It took the form of a revolt of the so-called poor whites, or non-slaveholding persons, against the aristocratic leaders who had for generations been supreme. The Civil War had not at once broken the power of that semi-feudal system which had flourished in the time of slavery, and which produced and perpetuated an oligarchic governing class. But now the masses began to demand control. Note 10, page 457. They set up leaders of their own, and gradually the older type of southern statesmen gave way to a far less admirable substitute. The most striking exemplification of the new order at the South was found in the person of Benjamin Ryan Tillman of South Carolina. Tillman did not, strictly speaking, belong to the class of poor whites. He was a man of some position and education but he was not of the governing caste, and he placed himself at the head of the poor whites in a political movement which resulted in the partial elimination of the governing caste from a position of local and national importance. Tillman was a very extraordinary figure, both as a man and as a politician. His personality was more than forceful. Lurking in his nature and easy to be roused was something of the savage, something even which suggested the ferocity of the wild beast. When stirred, he was violent almost beyond belief. 
He put absolutely no restraint upon his tongue, but hurled abuse at all who differed from him, denouncing them as hellhounds, traitors, and foul-mouthed liars. He had lost one eye, and this mutilation gave to his face a peculiarly truculent aspect even in repose, an aspect which became indescribably sinister and terrifying when the man was convulsed by one of his furious outbursts of passion. In 1890, by the aid of the Farmers' Alliance, he was elected Governor of South Carolina, wresting the control of the state from that gallant soldier and gentleman, Wade Hampton. As Governor, Mr. Tillman established the so-called State Dispensary System, a semi-socialistic plan under which the manufacture and distribution of intoxicating liquors were monopolized by the state. Note 11, page 458. Tillman's supremacy was not easily or peacefully acquired he had to face the opposition of an extremely influential section of society. In the cities his name was execrated. Attempts were made to disperse the meetings of his followers. He was vilified in every possible fashion. Riots broke out in several towns. His life was often threatened. Yet, in spite of everything, by his fearlessness, his energy, and his strong appeal to the passions and prejudices of the ignorant, he became the political master of South Carolina and was, for many years, a conspicuous figure in national affairs. In 1892 he was again elected governor, and in 1895 a senator of the United States. It was during his canvass for the latter office that he blazed out into relentless antagonism to President Cleveland, whom he attacked in speeches, the very outrageousness of which won him a wide hearing. "'Send me to Washington!' he would yell to the frantic mobs that cheered him and I'll stick my pitchfork into his old ribs. Even when speaking in his official capacity at the Atlanta Exposition, and before a dignified assemblage, he could not refrain from coarse and insulting language. There are some so infatuated that they think that all the financial wisdom of the country is monopolized by the East, and they say, me too, every time Cleveland grunts. I should not have said anything about the President, as I expect to get a better chance at him with my pitchfork in Washington, but it did my heart good to hear the Governor of Georgia say that the two crank reformers from South Carolina had evoked more applause than the President of the United States. Note 12, page 459. It was not, however, merely the Tillmans and Sibleys, nor even the Gormans and Bryces in Congress who were ranged in opposition to Mr. Cleveland. During the last year of his administration he seemed to live under a cloud of obloquy, blacker and more nearly unrelieved than that which any other elected president had ever known. The Republicans were never weary of pointing out what they described as the disastrous failure of his policies. A majority of his own party believed him not only to have wrecked it but to have betrayed it. The free silver men held him responsible for the financial depression. The capitalists called him rash and utterly unsafe because of his Venezuela message. The labor element detested him for breaking the great Chicago strike by the use of troops. Only here and there was a voice raised in his defense, and the defense was nearly always worded like a half-apology, ascribing to him only what was called success in defeat. One would have said, in view of all this bitter opposition and unrestrained contumely, that Mr. Cleveland was destined to live in history only as that president who, beginning with the most splendid opportunities, had most completely wrecked and ruined his own hope of honorable fame. Two very diverse opinions regarding President Cleveland's public career have been held by students of American politics. 
according to his eulogists, he was in no respect to blame for the partial failure of his policies. It is said that the whole responsibility of this failure must ultimately rest upon the Congress which deliberately thwarted and rejected his wise counsels. In the face of such corruption, incompetence, ignorance, and malice as were said to exist in both houses of the national legislature, how could any president have done more than Mr. Cleveland did? In the very opposition which he encountered, many find but one more tribute to his political purity and uncompromising integrity of character. On the other hand, his critics have asserted that the very terms in which he is most often praised constitute an impeachment of his statesmanship. A great party leader, they say, must do his work with such instruments as he has at hand. A statesman who is worthy of the name will master difficulties, overcome obstacles, adapt his methods to his instruments, prevail by management, by tact, and by judicious compromise until in the end he attains a lasting and complete success. He will make no unnecessary enemies. He will allow for prejudice, for human frailty of every kind, and he will not expect the walls of Jericho to fall at a single blast of his trumpet. The example of Lincoln is often cited as embodying the true art of statecraft and his patience and genial wisdom are contrasted with Mr. Cleveland's blunt and robust tactlessness. Success, it is said, is the measure of a statesman's fame, and Mr. Cleveland did not achieve success. It is probable that the truth is to be found somewhere between these two opposing views. The manner in which President Cleveland forced the repeal of the Sherman Act did undoubtedly so far alienate a powerful faction in the Senate as to make that body permanently hostile to him for the rest of his term of office. He treated senators of the United States precisely as he had, when Governor of New York, treated the petty politicians at Albany. He gave orders where a more tactful politician would have made requests. He displayed arrogance instead of conciliation. He cracked the whip and shouted instead of using the milder influences of persuasion. Those who received the patronage which he dispensed were secretly as hostile to him as those who angrily refused it, and far more humiliated. To say no gracefully is a difficult accomplishment, but even Mr. Cleveland's yes was often irritating. And so, as he possessed Lincoln's tolerance and worldly wisdom, he might, like Lincoln, have avoided personal hostility but the conditions of the time were so unusual that he must still have met with political opposition within his own party even as Lincoln did. For in 1864, Lincoln was of all men the least commended by the Republicans in Congress. On one occasion, an editor visiting Washington asked Thaddeus Stevens to introduce him to some members of Congress who were favorable to Lincoln's re-election. Stevens led him to the desk of Mr. Arnold of Illinois. There, said he, is the only Lincoln member of Congress that I know. Stevens regarded Lincoln as incompetent and weak. Henry Wilson, afterwards vice-president, spoke of him as politically a failure. Greeley had a low opinion of his ability. His personal friends, such as Washburn, Raymond, and Thurlow Weed, believed his re-election an impossibility. Even Lincoln himself at one time doubted it. Note 13, page 462 and therefore the example of Lincoln is not convincing when cited as embodying a rebuke to Mr. Cleveland. For what would it have profited the latter to retain the personal goodwill of senators and representatives if they were still politically hostile to him, driven on by forces of disorder and disunion too strong for them to master? In 1864, it was not Lincoln's tact and statesmanship that brought him a final triumph, but rather the brilliant victories won in the field by Sherman, Sheridan, and Grant. 
and the mention of mr lincoln brings to mind another circumstance which makes any parallel between him and mr cleveland most unfair to the democratic president lincoln embodied to the mind of the people two great issues that were really only one the preservation of the american union and the abolition of slavery at the root of both there lay a moral principle and both appealed with overwhelming force to sentiment they were so plain so vividly defined that no sophistry could obscure them no shrewd debater reasoned them away and so back of the supercilious politicians at the capitol were the masses of the people their eyes fixed with pathetic faith and loyalty upon that tall gaunt stooping homely man who to their minds meant everything that makes a cause worth dying for but to president cleveland it was given to deal with issues that made no such simple and direct appeal the questions that were his to solve were economic questions replete with technicalities which only a comparatively few could rightly understand and as to which even these comparatively few were not agreed catchwords and clever phrases and garbled facts when rolled forth glibly by a smooth-tongued speaker sufficed to make the worse appear the better reason and confuse the wits of half the nation hence the task which cleveland took upon himself was harder in its way than lincoln's and one which in its very nature could have been completed only after the weariness of many years and the bitterness of many failures so far as his own hand could perform what he attempted he was splendidly successful he was like a giant facing a terrific tempest if he could not advance he would at least not yield nor take a backward step his old-time foes assailed him without ceasing and his one-time friends betrayed him he encountered such malignity of hatred as would have terrified and sickened a weaker soul than his there are signs that within his heart even he often winced at the cruel falsehoods which assailed him yet none the less he stood unmoved and magnificently unafraid a superbly virile figure holding fast to what he felt to be the right and looking at all opponents squarely in the eye in the end he came to know that it was his not to achieve what he had hoped but to save that which had been entrusted to him and he did it bravely grimly powerfully opinions may differ as to his conception of his duty but the memory of his devotion to high principle his strength of will and his dauntless courage must remain to all americans a source of patriotic pride and an enduring inspiration End of chapter ten